remain standing for the reading of God's word. The reading is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark. Anybody recognize this guy? <laughs> yeah, okay. So for those of you that don't, this is, I've been looking forward to this day for months. So Stop. this is Sean Myers, and I'll explain a little bit more about it and kind of talk to him a little bit. But um, uh, Sean is a lead pastor at Redemption Peoria. And uh, about in June, I texted him and I said, you know, you guys have been gone for a year and a half now, and uh, it's about time we had you back to preach. Could you come in October and preach? And in Sean Myers fashion, he texted me back right away and said, people in Arcadia finally realizing they need some good preaching again. So... <laughs> No, no, yeah, I that's said, I, said, I have the people in Arcadia right probably here, realize bro. there's bad preaching. Oh, yeah, that now, they now they do. That's right. Okay, he's always got a twist or something. Preaching. That's right. See, we just fall right back into the same yeah, routine. Yeah. I'm telling you. So Sean and I worked together for three years here at Redemption Arcadia. He was a pastoral resident with the idea that he was going to plant a church, a Redemption Church, and uh, in February of 2015, so 20 months ago now. He and 50 people from this congregation, 50 adults from this congregation, and 25 children um, moved to the west side and planted Redemption Peoria. Uh, you had also developed a few people out there as well who yeah. started coming when you planted. Yeah. Uh, they moved into the um, uh, center, uh, Peoria Center for the Performing Arts. And uh, what's happened since then has been unbelievable what God has been doing through this. It didn't come as a surprise to many of us, but I think even you were taken aback by what, what's happened. But kind of tell us a, a little bit about the story of the last 20 months, what's been going on. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, I mean, it would, I think, speaks a testament to your leadership and Redemption Arcadia. I'm not saying that because I'm up here. Um, I think a healthy church is always going to make healthy churches, right? Plant healthy churches. And numbers aren't a, the, always the best way to, to, to know that. But I mean, to the numerical piece, yeah, we've grown. I mean, we, so we left with... Uh, about 75 people, men, women, and children, and we started the week after the Super Bowl uh, last year, and we've been going for about 20 months now, and the last couple Sundays, we've been averaging about 600 um, men, women, and children, um, and so we're moving out of that Peoria Performing Arts Center and, and, uh, and going to Centennial High School, which it, we're doing that in November, um, and it's just been awesome. We have all the good problems, um, you know, like what are we going to do with kids and, and parking and all that stuff, so it's been awesome to, to watch what God's doing and all that. And really, the move to Centennial opens up... Um uh, doubles the capacity, yep. but also opens up time too, because at the performing, uh, uh, the performing arts center, 
you got to get out of there by noon yeah. because they have plays in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. You know, so when we met there, the, the reason we're not going to continue to add a third service or whatever, that would be nice. The reality is they have matinees during the day, so we, it would be funky if we tried to add a service before or after. Um, and we thought about a night service of what that would look like, but they even have shows every now and then at night. So uh, we decided to go Centennial. It seats 500. Um, and, you know, we're not obviously maxing that up, but we'll do two services. And if something, you know, grows, if it conti God continues to do that. And really, in your mind, that's just kind of a staging area for the next move because you would really like to be able to have property. Yeah, at yeah, some point. yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll definitely hope, uh, you know, not all of us are given really cool buildings, Frank. So thanks for that. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. If an old church happens to want to give us a building, we will gladly accept it. This is going to be fun. Yeah. Amen. All right. Let me pray for Sean yeah. and let him just get at it. Lord God, we are so grateful for how you work in your people. And uh, we just love the fact that your grace, your faithfulness, your wisdom, your hope, and your peace has been made real to this guy right here. And you have gifted him to communicate the gospel. And so let us just sit back and be washed in the blood of Jesus, let us sit back and be washed in your word. And God, uh, we pray, we know that you're going to bless us this time. We just pray that we'll, we'll reflect that back to you in glory for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Frankie. Um, I, I, something I uh, didn't do in first service that I want to do in second is, uh, is, you know, I know a lot of you guys, but I also recognize I don't know a lot of you guys. So just let me give you a quick background. I think it's always helpful to, to know where I'm coming from. So um, when I came to Arcadia, um, there were actually two other Sean's already on staff. And so I was the third Sean. Uh, and there was Myers, which is me, Mortensen, and then a guy named Sean Johnson. And um, I came and immediately, for some reason, people don't want to use, you know, last names. They had kind of labeled us um, uh, baggy pants Sean. I don't know what Mortensen were, and I don't, definitely don't know what Sean Johnson, if you remember him, that dude's pants were painted on. Um, <laughs> But, but they kind of labeled us these, these things. And, and I want to tell you that because my story, I, I think, helpful, is helpful to, to uh, get you there and even how we came to Peoria. So I didn't grow up in a Christian home at all. Matter of fact, um, both my parents growing up were drug addicts. They both uh, made and did methamphetamines. My mom was really brilliant. Uh, my dad, you know, not so much so. It was, it was a kind of a one-night stand deal. Uh, had me and then, uh, you know, I was born. And so I kind of grew up in that world. Been in a couple drug busts in my life. Uh, just experienced that. But in high school... Um, prior to going to high school, I'd spent some time in foster care. And uh, when I got out of foster care, my dad was able to get me, brought me here back to the Valley because I was born and raised in Phoenix. And um, I have a buddy named Eric who's currently a firefighter here in the, in the city of Phoenix. Um, his mom, when we were 12 years old, uh, uh, died. But before she had died, um, she would tell him stories about the book of Revelation. And um, she was a meth addict with my mom. His mom and my mom were best friends. And um, she would tell these stories, the book of Revelation, as he would go to sleep at night um, to Eric. Okay, now I need you to track with me because if you know anything about the book of Revelation, she's telling a little kid these stories, but she's on meth, okay? So it's the book of Revelation on meth, okay? So he, one night when we were about 16 years old, starts to unpack what his mom had told me, okay? So he asked me, hey, Sean, do you think we're going to go to heaven when we die? And we just got done. I always tell this story. I've told this story. So those of you who have uh, met me before a hundred times, but we were playing Twisted Metal. I remember very specifically, maybe you don't know what Twisted Metal is, but it was a game. Um, they were playing Twisted Metal. We had beat the whole game, and I responded with, yeah, we just beat Twisted Metal. Of course we're going to heaven. Um, and I kind of joked, you know, laughed it off. Well, he begins to unpack to me all that his mom had told him, okay? So he's laying out, like, the sun's going to turn to... To, to blood and the moon and their scorpions the size of men. Well, good night. I'm glad we're going to heaven, okay? And he goes to sleep. I don't go to sleep, okay? 
so the next day, we're trying to find out. I'm, I'm like, dude, we're going to church. We couldn't find a church at all. Um, but the, there was a night service right by the, the place that we are staying. And we roll into this uh, small, I mean, very small, maybe probably half the size, quarter of the size of this room. And it was a very charismatic church. And I walk in, and um, there was this older lady up front. Uh, I'll never forget her to this day. Um, she had long white hair. Her name was Grace. And we just kept saying, Grace in your face, Grace in your face. Because she was just screaming, right? People are speaking in tongues and waving flags. And I'm like, this is just like at home. Um, so, 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 so I remember very specifically, um, I remember very specifically uh, at the end of the service, not even fully understanding what God was doing as I look back now, um, fully comprehending, but saying the sinner's prayer, grace walking me through what it means to follow Jesus. And, and I, I say this every time I tell the story, but it's maybe a quarter mile walk, not very far at all. Um, walking back home, I felt like I floated home. I knew there was something different. I didn't know the extent of what it was, but God called my name that night. Um, and then and then a guy named Luke, who's actually here, he, he, uh, he uh, ended up discipling me, teaching me how to read my Bible. And then we, that church ended up closing down. We ended up going to another church, which was also charismatic. And, um, and then I was felt called to ministry. And long story short, ended up at Redemption uh, about, geez, six years ago. And, uh, and then that is when I came in. So I came to Arcadia as a pastoral resident, and I had all kinds of hood in me, right? And then I left, like, knowing what pour over and La Grande Orange was, right? And now I stand up here with tight jeans. You see what I'm saying? Like, I'm a sellout. That's all that was the point of the story. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, so now you know who I am. Um, but anyway, take that for whatever it's worth. Um, we're in Matthew 6. If you already, already turned there, I'm going to start us in verse 5. I know the scripture reading started in verse 7. I'm going to start us in verse 5. And uh, I'm going to recap just a little bit what Frank had said. My goal this morning is really to hone in on the Lord's Prayer itself. But I want to provide, uh, provide an immediate context for the Lord's Prayer. And then I want to kind of, as we start to read the Lord's Prayer, a very broad context of what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is what it says in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the first thing I want you to notice is when you pray, that pray not to drop like Greek bombs on you, but in the Greek is something in the present tense, which isn't the same as the English present tense. It's an ongoing. So what Jesus is saying is you're going to be praying, constantly be praying, and when you pray, do this. And that's true for verses 7. That's true for verse 9. That word pray, this verb, is ongoing. Now, what he's saying, he's saying, but I don't want you to be like these hypocrites because the religious leaders at the time, they would love this attention. So one of the things we saw last week is they would ring this bell, clap their hands. Hey, it's time to give. It's time to give. And all the homeless would gather around, but as the homeless gathered around, they also knew people were watching them, right? And so they would love to give to the homeless. They would love to give to the poor, to the needy, with other people watching. And Jesus is saying, don't give like that. And it was true for prayer as well. They would wear these long robes, and they would pray these long prayers. And believe me, you ain't heard long prayers until you've been in the charismatic church, okay? We've been praying for hours, right? And you're like, stop praying already. Now, Jesus... Jesus is saying, listen, these people are praying for the wrong reasons, which almost begs the question, like, who are they praying to, right? And that's, I mean, a crazy thought. They're praying to, to be heard, and Jesus says, don't pray like that. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Go in your room, in secret, be still, pray to God. He knows who you are. He knows what you've got to say. 
And he continues on. And then he says in verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, um, the, the Jews at the time, the religious leaders at the time, had five, day, five times during the day where they'd pray, morning, kind of mid-lunch, lunch, sort of evening, and then as they would go to sleep, there's these five moments. The Gentiles mimic that a lot. The difference being is there wasn't a rhythm to the way that the Gentiles would pray to Baal or whoever it was. Um, they would kind of just say these incantations over and over and over and over again. And the reality is it felt very, here's a $100 word, deistic. It felt removed from who they were actually talking to. And, and this is important because what Jesus does here is he says, I don't want you to pray like, pray like the hypocrites, like, like to be heard by people, but I also don't want you to pray like an orphan. I, I want you to recognize you're heard, which is um, big for us to recognize. Up to this point, there's been a word that's been used three times that we have to stop, and it's used 10 times in the first 18 verses of chapter 6 in Matthew. And I think Jesus uses this word as he turns on a dime. He doesn't use it the way that he does in Matthew 5. Matter of fact, uh, this word that he uses to describe God is Father. It's not used any other 18 verses in all of the Bible as much as it is used in these 18 verses. Matter of fact, if you were to take 18 chapters of the Bible, the word Father is used more in these 18 verses than it is in 18 chapters. If you were to go a step further, the first book in your New Testament is Matthew, and that is canonically at least. Uh, uh, It's right after the Old Testament, and God is not described as a Father in all of the Old Testament as much as he is described. In, in these 18 verses. So Jesus, very rhythmically, is trying to teach us orally in this sense that I'm turning on a dime and I'm trying to show you something that you're not just praying out there, but you're praying to a father. Hear me, look at me, because he cares. You understand? Some of you have, have tried to justify your church attendance and you're, you're, you're not listening to secular music and you're not watching certain movies and you, you're praying like a hypocrite so that other people can see and hear. Yet on the other end, you don't even know if God hears you anymore. You've been lost in this juxtapositioning of I'm so far that God can't hear me, but I'm just going to continue to pray. And you pray like an orphan, but he cares. You understand that? He cares. He cares emotionally. He cares what's going on mentally. He cares physically, and he cares spiritually. A guy named Rick McKinley, a pastor in Portland, uh, told the story of a, of a kid he knew that he met when he was nine years old, had been with a family who had been in the foster care system for three years. So when he was six, he, he uh, joined this family, and he'd been with this family for, for three years. And at nine, finally, they went to the courtroom and signed the papers. And Rick tells the story of how this kid carried, held onto his courtroom papers everywhere he went, right? So he would go and go, look, I'm, I'm adopted. I'm legally adopted now. Can you see that I'm adopted? And this began to bug Rick because um, it was as if the papers were intrinsically valuable. Like now suddenly you're part of this family, but he never spoke to all the nuance and the beauty and the poetry of being a part of that family for three years. And it's important up to this point that we see this is almost what Jesus is saying. Look, I've got my papers. I'm justified by Jesus. He saved me. He's so good. But we rejoice in our justification and completely neglect the fact that that has led us to adoption in him, finding our comfort in him, finding our joy in him. That relationship is the apex of going into this prayer. That we, we, can't, we cannot, I, I, the historical irony, we can't bring to the table the fact that the, the thing that Jesus lays in front of us in the Lord's Prayer is probably one of the most relational things that he gives us, yet historically it has become one of the most religious things we do. 
We love to make very patternistic things as we approach these things, but I need you to understand Jesus is bringing to the table. I want to tell you how to pray, but before we talk about how to pray, let's talk about who we're praying to, bro. You tracking with me on that? So he, he lays out, he is your father. Now, maybe you're like me and you don't have a good dad, okay? Maybe that's true. Jesus helps us understand what kind of dad this is from the jump as we see in verse 9. This is what he says. This is the prayer. Pray, again, in the present tense, ongoing as you pray. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This word hollow, I would argue, is a traditional translation. We, we, you probably know this prayer through thees and vows and all that stuff. But this hallowed is, is um, I don't know anywhere to say it, then put on your thinking caps for a second. It's an imperative, meaning um, it's the only imperative for us. It's the only thing in the Lord's Prayer where we are told that we should be doing something. Meaning, Jesus is saying, as you start to pray, let's make God's name holy. Let, let's remember who we're talking to. A guy named R.C. Sproul says this, The Bible says that God is holy, 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 not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, the reason this is important is because the idea of holiness is set apart. Now, this is where we have to stop on the Lord's Prayer and zoom out for a second and remember where we are in the book of Matthew. If you haven't been with um, Redemption Church from the beginning of going through the Sermon on the Mount, here's what we've learned, okay? Starting in chapter 5 in Matthew, Jesus gathers all these people around and he starts talking about something. This thing that he talks about more than any other thing in all of the Bible, yet us as Christians know very little about it. It's, it's referred to 68 times as the kingdom of God. 31 times is the kingdom of heaven, and once it's called the kingdom of Christ. Jesus talks about this more than anything else. And we know that he is talking about this as we go into the Sermon on the Mount, because in Matthew 4, here's Matthew 4, which is obviously right before 5, Matthew 4, 23, and he, Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So he's telling them, right? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Healing every disease and every affliction from among them showing them. So here's what we know. Mark 1, Jesus arrives on the scene. He says, here's the kingdom of God. It's at hand. I'm here. And what he does in his ministry is he constantly shows what the kingdom of God is like as he heals. Disease is not welcomed in the kingdom of God. There will be a day where you will look God face to face and there will be no more disease, affliction, demonic oppression. Everything Jesus is doing is showing the beauty of his kingdom. But he's also telling parable after parable after parable of it. He is talking about this constantly. And so here's what we know. Jesus enters the scene and he says, I have brought my kingdom here on earth. I'm bringing it here which leads us to believe that there is a kingdom, which he talks about here on earth already, that that kingdom of God is infiltrating. Now, if you're not a Christian, this is where I sound like super weird and spiritual. But as Christians, we wholeheartedly believe that the one who's in charge right now should not be in charge. According to Ephesians 2, John 12, that the prince and the power of the air, the devil, so if you're not a Christian, this may be goofy to you, but right now, because of him, the world is broken. Every time you feel the weight of that lost family member, every time you were burned by someone in business, it's because he is scheming. I, I wrote down some things so you can understand the, 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 the exact nature of what's going on because of this kingdom of darkness that we live in currently. Satan's influences 
Uh, he influences ideals, opinions, goals, hopes, and views of the majority of all the people we know. His influence also encompasses the world's philosophies, education, and commerce. The thoughts, ideas, speculations, and false religions of this world are under his control, and you have sprung from, and sprung from his lies and deception. So right now, the kingdom of darkness is at hand. Jesus has come, and the Sermon on the Mount is whole, and he's showing us the way of the kingdom. And you know how he tells us to pray? He reminds us that God is holy. So here's why this is a big deal. Because let's start with the fact that the kingdom of God is the way things are supposed to be. So we pray to a God, to the king who is holy, because he has brought things the way they are supposed to be. So you have views politically? Check it out. They succumb to God's holiness. So, so the reason R.C. Sproul would say, it doesn't say justice, 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 wrath, 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 love, 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 because what we know to be true about justice, love, wrath, finds its right being in God's holiness. It is the way things are supposed to be. So you think you've got enough swag to lead your kids how you want. The reality is you don't. We are to lean on to God's holiness because he knows how it should be. Your political views, the way you treat your spouse, the way you treat your neighbor, God has presented you the way things are supposed to be. And you continue to believe the lies of darkness, don't you? You continue to fight for synthetic versions of joy, and they let you down, and they let you down, and they let you down. And he offers you now a father who cares, who listens, who understands, and holds in the very being of who he is the way things are supposed to be. This is beautiful. So when we start, the best example I can give, which would fall short, is Jim Ellis is, a, um, is an elder at Redemption Peoria, and he was in the, the Navy for 35 years, and he had told stories when certain officers would come on deck, high officers in the military would come on deck, everyone stands to their feet, there's a recognition of who is in the room. And Jesus says, hey, let me teach you how to pray. God the Father, he is in heaven, I need you to understand, he is holy, and the Bible pushes this over and over and over again, know who's in the room, man. Know who's in the room. Know who you're praying to. Now, from there, I would argue that um, everything else is going to, in the Lord's Prayer, going to find its roots in that. You understand? So after, right after this, Jesus says, pray. This is your God's in heaven. His name is holy. This is who he is. And then we pray that his kingdom would come on earth, right? This kingdom, that, that the way that we understand heaven to be is that it is sinless. And because of that, we want to experience that here on earth. But unfortunately, even as Christians, we have, a, we have an inward groaning to know that Jesus is true. We've experienced that on a tangible level, but we look around us and it's not true fully yet. So we would pray that God's kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. And then he tells us very specifically to pray for three things. Now, I'm not a dummy. I know that most of you guys have heard the Lord's Prayer before. He's going to tell us to pray for provision, right? Give us our daily bread. He's going to tell us to pray for forgiveness, forgive us as we, so on and so forth. And then he's going to tell ultimately to pray for deliverance, right? So as we enter into trials and temptations, I want to just very briefly explain those because the hardest part to unpack in all this is actually the last two verses, 14 and 15, that we'll spend some time on. First, uh, the first thing that he's going to tell us to pray for um, is verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, Let's start here. So I just told you my story. There, um, my sophomore year, I ended up moving and living with some families, but I ended up landing with a guy on the basketball team um, and his family. In the last three years of high school, I ended up living with them. And I remember moving into their house, and it's not, I mean, I say my childhood, it wasn't as bad as I make it sound, right? Like, I mean, well, it was normal, but as normal as methodic parents can be. Um, but but, but I, I remember kind of having to take care of yourself, right? And I remember moving into um, this family, the Youngs, the Youngs was their name, John and Nancy Young. 
and they had kind of unofficially adopted me for three years. And when I lived with them, um, it was crazy to wake up and like Nancy was already kind of making breakfast or already taking care of us. Like, and, and that was an odd thing, right? Because I did not process like this void, like, like that's what a mom does. That's what a mom does. And in this moment, as a father, he provides that we would pray. And God wants us to know this constantly because some of us have a tendency to beat our chest because you worked 50 hours last week. It's your money. You did it. You earned it. God didn't provide anything. And something I've tried to put in front of our congregation, I've said to you before, you did not will your mind to grow in your mother's womb. You weren't in there growing your arms out so you can be able to do some of the things that you did. That was not you. That was a gift from God. So from the moment we ask for our daily bread, we recognize it is a gift from him. From, like you, you roll into Little Caesars, you get your pizza, right? This is a gift from, well, okay. We roll into Chipotle um, and we get our burrito. We recognize the rice came from somewhere, the beans came from somewhere, that, that the steak came from somewhere, the sour cream, and in God's sovereignty, he had that for you, which causes us to wrestle a little bit, doesn't it? Because there's 100,000 people who will die of starvation today all over the world. So it's, it's interesting. Um, one of the first things that is ever said when you start to talk about the Lord's Prayer is that everything within the Lord's Prayer is in the plural. I mean, look at it. You notice, like, uh, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts. Us, our, us, our. And I think that's important um, because we also recognize as much as we have, we also have a recognition that we are to give. Martin Luther, uh, a reformer, um, if you don't know who he is, uh, said this. When you pray for daily bread, you are praying for everything that contributes to your having and enjoying your daily bread. You must open up and expand your thinking so that it reaches not only as far as the flour bin and baking oven, but also out of the broad fields and farmlands, the entire country that produce, processes, and conveys to us our daily bread and all kinds of nourishment, that God is in control of all of these things, and he provides for us in such a way that we are, at the same time, to provide for others. This is an us thing, okay? And I'll get to more of that in a second, and we'll come back to that idea. Let's go to the verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we, forgive, uh, as we have forgiven our debtors. The second thing that Jesus wants us to recognize is not that God provides your needs and us to recognize that, and we pray for that, but at the same time, God provides forgiveness, that it's God alone who forgives, we have tendency as, as human beings to self-atone, don't we? Like we see this in, in false religions and even in Christianity. Look at all of the hypocrisy that we saw in the last couple of weeks that Jesus lays out. Because you pray, because you fast, because you give, look how awesome I am. And no, Jesus is saying we go to God for forgiveness. I have a, a friend who's uh, much older now, but he's almost 60 years old. Um, he, uh, he was a teenager and he was smoking pot in the back, in a backyard with a friend one day. And, uh, he tells the story. It's, it was here in the Valley. Um, and, and they saw a co uh, an officer drive down the alleyway. And so him and his buddy immediately split and they went different ways. And, uh, my, my friend, he ended up, uh, going to Taco Bell and got a big, uh, Pepsi because he was worried that if the cops saw him, they'd be able to smell him and he'd smell like marijuana. And so he got this huge Pepsi and he just dumped it on his head and started to wash himself with Pepsi, okay? Now, I need you to hear how ridiculous that is, right? Okay? Because that was Frank Switzer. True story. <laughs> oh, and now he's a pastor. <laughs> he's your pastor. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, the point is this. Uh, that's true. Um, 
the, the point is this. We, we feel like, how ridiculous that may be, we can, we can hide or we can find forgiveness or self-atone. And Jesus wants to remind us, no, hear me, bro. Forgiveness comes from God and God alone. It comes from God and God alone. Now, that second part we're going to come back to, as we also for, um, have forgiven our debtors, we're going to come back to that because that ties in with verses 14 and 15. But the third thing we pray for is deliverance, right? Which this word... Um, Let's read it. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This word temptation is the same Greek word for trials, testing, whatever it is. And it is interesting because Jesus himself goes into temptation. So it's almost as if he's saying, God, I've, I've been there and it's awful. I'm going to teach them to pray that they don't go into that, right? And, and what he's doing is he's, he's laying us. Now, he prays something very similar to this in uh, uh, John 17. He, what he's basically saying is, I don't want them to remove themselves from the world. I understand that. But I want you to protect them with your word. I want you to protect them with truth because your word is truth. Now, um, I, I think what we can gather from this last part, that, that we would find our deliverance and our deliverance alone, our comfort and our comfort alone, when we go through trials, when we go through temptation in God, that he would wake us up and remind us of whom we belong to, that we have a father who cares, and we would not try to not just self-atone for our sins, but we would find our security and comfort in, in anything else but God, that God would deliver us from those things. Hear me, man, you're going to lose a family member. That's just going to happen. You're not unique in that you, you somehow you're, you, you won't lose them or, or, or pain is coming your way. Um, man, sickness, harm, being broken up by, being burnt, those things are coming. And Jesus in this moment is laying out the beauty of not just, hey, have them escape from them because listen to John 17, I don't want this to remove them from the world, but they would ultimately find their comfort in you, protect them, lead them not into this evil way. And this is, of course, how we see Jesus playing it out. He experiences temptation but doesn't sin. Now, from here, um, it seems like he just kind of turns on this prayer. He's, he's done telling us, giving us these requests, and then kind of out of nowhere, it feels like he gives us this statement, right? And it's no longer like, hey, pray for this, but then he says, um, for if you... Forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you, forgive your trespasses. If you look at verse 12, the same idea, right? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So essentially what Jesus is saying is, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Now we sat um, in the preaching collective, if you don't know, the lead pastors and teaching pastors every Wednesday get together uh, 10 days out from the Sunday of the sermon that's going to be preached. And we got to this part and everything within us wanted to play origami with the text. Well, maybe he means this. And hear me when I say this, I've got nothing. I, all I hope and pray in this moment is that you would be jarred by the fact that Jesus puts in front of you that if you do not forgive your brother, you will not be forgiven. And I think there is something to be said about Philippians 2.12, that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that we can think, and somehow as having a father, I love Corbin, my oldest son, I love Titus, my middle son, and I love Eve, my youngest daughter. I, I, I love them, and here they are. But the reality is, um, I, I, don't, I, I love them, but I'm not good when Corbin and Titus are fighting. You understand? Like, I can't just sit back and go, well, at least Corbin and I are good. At least Titus and I are good. I mean, I know they're fighting, but at least we're good. No. As a father, he cares about this, which is huge, because immediately we, he ties in the Lord's prayer to an all-inclusive thing. These things are true. You have a father, and it's true. But if you don't, 
If you don't forgive, if you cannot lean in this direction, you need to start questioning, y'all. You need to start questioning. Let me lay it out to you. I've already quoted Luther and uh, Sproul. I might as well quote, quote Piper here. This is what he says. If the forgiveness that we received at the cost of the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is so ineffective in our hearts that we are bent on holding unforgiving grudges and bitterness against someone, we are not a good tree as spoken in Matthew 7. We are not saved. We don't cherish this forgiveness. We don't trust in this forgiveness. We don't embrace and treasure this forgiveness. We are hypocrites. We are just mouthing. We have... We haven't ever felt the piercing, joyful wonder that God paid with the life of his son. What I need you to hear in this little quote, that part where he says, it is so ineffective in our hearts that we are bent on holding unforgiving grudges. Now, there's a difference, right? Because check it out. Like, it's not easy to forgive my parents right away for what they had done. And maybe you got similar situations, man. I don't know the unique situation each of you in. So maybe you have justifiable reasons as to why you shouldn't forgive them. But here's what Jesus, or here's what John Piper, close, Jesus, John Piper. Here's what, what John Piper is doing. He, he's saying, listen, it's not that it's hard to forgive. That, that's one thing. But if you are hell-bent on the fact that you will never forgive them, I'll never be able to get past that, you can never see past your own pride in that, then you've missed it. John Wesley talks to one of his parishioners, a great story. The man comes up to him, John Wesley, uh, hundreds of years ago, and he comes up to him and uh, he says, ah, I hear you. He was preaching on the Lord's Prayer. He said, but I, I, I just could never forgive. And John Wesley just looks at him in his eyes and says, well, sir, then I hope you never sin. The reality is he puts in front of us a big deal. Hear me. This should jar us. This should jar us. What's coming next in the next chapter is the most terrifying verse in all of Scripture that some of us can stand before Jesus one day and we can look at him and we can call him Lord, Lord. You understand? Due to casting out demons who are giving away all of their money, all of these great things, and he will look at them. I don't know you, bro. That's terrifying. For us to take a nonchalant approach to the way that we live out our Christianity is scary. And there should be fear within the way we process our relationship with God. Now, now, now hear me. I started with this idea of this father who loves us, right? And this, this is what we want to do. We want to hold to polar opposites. On one hand, we recognize God, the other father loves us desperately. He cares desperately, but he cares so much that he's willing to challenge the idols within you because they're killing you, which leads us to the gospel. Because as Jesus brings this kingdom, he lays out not an escapism that he's come to save your soul so that one day you can meet Kirk Cameron in the air. No, the reality is, as he, he comes and he brings this, he brings this idea that, that, no, I've come to, to eradicate sin fully. I've come to, to, to not just save your souls, but I've come to, to restore all things back to the way that they're supposed to be. And that includes your heart. So I, I can help you get over this. But if you want to fight these things, you've missed it. You've missed it. Uh, let me read something to you in 1 John. I don't think I have it on the screen. This is what it says in 1 John, verse 7, chapter 2. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard, and at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Okay, just stop real quickly, okay? What he just said is, I'm going to present to you something that is old. You've heard this. You know this to be true. And if we could just stop and listen to John as he writes those words, everything I've laid out this morning, nothing's new. I mean, no one's coming like up afterwards like, dude, I've never heard the fact that we should forgive people. That's crazy. Okay. No, we know that. 
We know that to be true. And so as we hold, this is what John's saying. He's been talking about this. The same idea that we can't forgive or we can't hold grudges against others and still say we love God. We're lying if that's true. And so he's saying, I'm not giving you a new commandment, but maybe it is new. And my hope is in the same way you're hearing this in a new light. And he goes on, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Verse nine, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no causing for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and whoever walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So Jesus is going to correlate our relationship with him as a father immediately to our relationships with ourselves. I mean, if we've got to think practically what this means for us, but if First John is correct, we are still in darkness. We are still, and I quote, blinded if we still continue to hold grudges against our brother. And that, that, that should scare us. Now, here's the good news of the gospel. You don't have to hold it down anymore. You don't have to hold that grudge anymore. You, you can let that go. And, and that sounds so simple, right? But let me tell you a story um, that I did not make up. Matter of fact, it's Jesus' idea. He starts by saying the kingdom of heaven is like this in Matthew 18. And he tells the story of a master who has a, who, who, uh, who has a servant. And this servant makes, let's say, minimum wage at Subway. And he's working, but he owes the master millions of dollars. And so he goes to the master, and the master's ready to throw him into the prison. And, and, and here comes a servant. He's like, dude, I work at Subway. I'm not ever going to be able to pay this debt off. I'll, I'll do my best. I'll continue to pay payments as long as I can. And he's on his knees. Matthew 18 literally says he's on his knees pleading with the master. And the master looks at him and says, not only do you not have to worry about paying it off right now, you don't have to worry about paying it off, period. You're forgiven of this debt. Go. Millions of dollars. Just let go. And the story goes on to say that this servant walks out the door and immediately across the street sees another servant who owes him 20 bucks. And he grabs him by the cloak and he says, bro, you owe me $20. Pay it now or you're going to jail. And the guy goes, I can't pay it. He says, so he takes him over to the prison, throws him in. Well, the other servants around see what happened. They, they, they see this altercation. And so they go to the master and they say, dude, the guy you just forgave $10 million, he didn't forgive this guy 20 bucks. And so the master calls him in. Now, now, now let me just pause there very quickly. I don't need to tell you how this is analogous, right? I don't, I don't need, like the master is God. We are that first servant. We have been forgiven. We walk out the door and we can't forgive on nearly a microscopic level in which we've been forgiven. And you know how this parable ends? As he describes in the beginning of this parable, it's the parable of the kingdom of God. You know how this parable ends? Listen to what it says in Matthew 18, 25. So also my heavenly father will do, in every, uh, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let it jar you. Your Christianity is not meant to be on an island. It is meant to have implications in the way we interact with everyone. And God's holiness is driving that, isn't it? God's holiness is driving that. Listen, I have forgiven you. Now, here's where I would argue, and this is the last thing I'll say. Um, I would argue that it's hard for you to let go because you haven't truly seen the beauty of grace. I'm not saying it's not just hard and you can't, but you're refusing to let go of this grudge Ultimately, you're bent on keeping it there because you have not seen the beauty. Now, I can lay out how God provides for you. I can lay out how God delivers you, and I can lay out how God forgives you, and you hear that, and that is such good news. But the last Sunday that I preached at Redemption Arcadia, 
I use this huge analogy within C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia because we were reading it with her boys, and I didn't have time to share one of the stories at the end, and it's 20 months I've been waiting to share this story with you, okay? So, so in this story, um, the very first book that C.S. Lewis writes in the Chronicles of Narnia, which is these, these series of books that he writes essentially for kids to kind of understand what the kingdom of God is, who Jesus is, as talking animals, all this. Well, there's this figure, this lion, who is the Jesus figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. And the first book that, that is in the story, at least chronologically in this story, um, there's this image where uh, all the people who, who, um, who first enter Narnia are looking around, and it's just black, it's void, it's, it's empty, it's spaceless, and they're looking around, and they're going, there's nothing here, and this is Narnia, this is how Narnia starts, and it's a parallel to how God creates all things, because what happens is they start to hear this voice, and as they hear this voice, things are beginning to be created within that black void of nothingness, and this is how it goes on. This is from the magician's nephew. Uh, towards the the, the middle half of, of the book, it says this, in the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begin, begun to sing. The blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do on a summer evening. But one moment, there had been nothing but darkness. The next moment, a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. Single stars, constellations, planets, brighter and bigger than any in our world. There were no clouds to block such things. The earth was of many colors. They were fresh, hot, and vivid. They made you feel excited. Hear this, until you saw the singer himself. And then you forgot everything else. It was a lion. The story plays out that you see the beauty of what this lion is doing until you see the lion himself. And suddenly everything else pales in comparison. Yes, God the Father loves you. He's forgiven you. He, he will deliver you. He will provide for you. But hear me, God's holiness, his goodness, his justice, his mercy, his grace is good within his kingdom because the king is good. My prayer is that you would see the beauty of the king, that you would understand these gifts are true, that we pray to a father who himself is worth praying to if we got nothing else. Let me pray for us and then we'll lead our uh, time in corporate response. Father, thanks so much for who you are. Jesus, we're grateful, God, for the opportunity and even to be reminded that as you lay out your kingdom uh, in this sermon that you gave, the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus, we're so grateful that we have it. As you lay this out, that we hold fast to the fact that you are holy. You have a standard, a way of the way things are supposed to be. And because of that, we trust when it comes to providing for us. We trust when it comes to forgiving us. We trust when it comes to delivering us. And that in such a way would, would propel us to respond to do the same for others, that we would forgive others, we would help deliver our brothers and sisters out of darkness, and that ultimately we would provide for others as well, all because of your good holiness, your mercy, your love, your justice. We thank you so much for that. Ultimately, our prayer is, Jesus, that we would see you rightly, that you are a good king, and you are ultimately what makes the kingdom of God beautiful. Thank you so much for that. We love you. We need you. We desperately, desperately want you. Though our flesh sometimes pushes in the opposite direction, we want you. We desperately want to know you. Thank you so much for the reminder in the Lord's Prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.